This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The United States Supreme Court last week, in a 5-4 decision, shocked the nation by allowing a new anti-abortion law in Texas to take effect. The law effectively bars all abortions, banning them after six weeks of gestation, which is when most pregnant people first discover their pregnancies. In refusing to take a position against the law, the conservative majority on the court, three of whose justices were appointed by former President Donald Trump, have effectively stricken down Roe versus Wade. President Joe Biden's Justice Department has said it will examine a challenge to the Texas abortion ban, but so far has not taken decisive action. I spoke in July of this year about the ban when it was first just getting ready to be signed by Governor Greg Abbott. I spoke with Imani Gandhi, senior legal analyst for RewireNewsGroup.com, where she covers law and the courts and co-hosts the podcast Boom Lawyered. Here's an excerpt of that conversation. Is the law that Abbott signed about the making abortion illegal after six weeks into a pregnancy, is that one of the most restrictive in the nation that you've seen? It is. It, it is um, without question. And that's not only because of the six week gestational ban marker. There are a lot of states that have been trying to pass six week bans for the past several years. But what makes this particular Texas bill particularly odious is that there's really no remedy that people who are being oppressed by these by this law have. So the law essentially deputizes Anyone who opposes abortion, anyone who sees an abortion that violates this particular statute that is that is that is conducted prior to this six week mark, this arbitrary six week mark, it allows anyone in the country who opposes abortion to file a lawsuit against that provider and not just against the provider, but against anyone who helped the, the patient get that abortion. So that means abortion funds like T fund. That means just mutual aid organizations, you know, people who will tweet out, for example, so-and-so needs an abortion. Does anyone have $5 they want to send to this GoFundMe? Those types of fundraisers could be construed as aiding or abetting an abortion. So that becomes criminalized. So it's bad enough that this law is a unconstitutional pre-viability abortion ban, but the, the enforcement mechanism is so unusual in that it is not enforced by any state actor. It's enforced by private actors. And so normally what happens when you have a law that's passed like this, the state is giving is given the power to, to um, in, impose the penalties or to enforce it, right? By taking out the state action, the state enforcement mechanism, what it does is it essentially makes it really difficult for anyone to file an injunction, to file for a temporary restraining order blocking that law from going into effect. So what I mean by that is, you know, for the past five, six, seven years, as soon as a law like this is passed, Planned Parenthood or the ACLU or the Center for Reproductive Rights will file a lawsuit almost immediately challenging the law on the grounds that it's unconstitutional. What the state of Texas has done has made it impossible for those people to find anyone in the Texas government to sue because there's no one in the Texas government who can enforce the law. And if there's no one in the Texas government who can enforce the law, then suing someone in the Texas government is pointless because there's no remedy that you can get. And so what it's doing is it's, it, is it's sort of opening up the legal process to everyone in the country. Someone in Alaska, for example, if there's an anti-choice protester or advocate in Alaska who disagrees with abortion and who thinks that 
someone in Texas should not have been able to get a particular abortion. They can sue the abortion provider. They can sue the Uber driver who drove that person to the abortion. They could sue someone who saw a, a link on Twitter and decided that they were gonna dig into their pocket and provide 10, 15, $20 to support that person getting an abortion. So it's really, really pernicious. And I have to kind of hand it to Texas Republicans. It's actually rather clever. The bill incentivizes private citizens financially that if they mm -hmm. were to successfully challenge someone implicated in an abortion in court, that they get 10,000 bucks for doing so? Right. And so it's, it's using taxpayer dollars to provide a bounty for bounty hunters to go attacking or harassing abortion providers. It's truly, it's a truly remarkable move, um, made only more remarkable by the fact that there's a city in Texas, Lubbock, Texas, that tried, that, that has essentially passed a law that designates Lubbock, Texas as a sanctuary city. And because there's a, a sanctuary for what? A, a, a sanctuary city for the quote unquote unborn, mm. right? So there are these, and I think it's the 30th one right now that we have in Texas, where there are these, these municipalities that have passed these localized uh, uh, bills that criminalize abortion. And so the fact that Lubbock, Texas did this and Lubbock, Texas did this with this private enforcement mechanism and Planned Parenthood filed a lawsuit and that lawsuit was dismissed on the grounds that I, just spoke about on the grounds that there was there's no lawsuit yet right there's no one who has been harmed by this law so what has to happen in lubbock texas is that someone has to try to go get an abortion be sued by some private actor in state or out of state and then the lawsuit can commence because then the lawsuit is what we like to call in legal parlance ripe meaning that it is it is it is ready like fruit right like you know you don't pick a fruit off of a tree before it's ripe you don't file a lawsuit and expect a remedy before that lawsuit is ripe and so right now what we have is the potential for let's say for example operation save america decides to target whole woman's health a whole a whole woman's health clinic whole woman's health is the lead plaintiff in the lawsuit that was filed let's say a bunch of different anti-abortion advocates decide to file lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit against this one clinic that means that one clinic has to fight a multi-front war they have to defend lawsuits from multiple people who could be suing them from all over the country um, and another thing i believe that's in this particular law is that there's no opportunity for the person being sued to change the venue of the lawsuit meaning you know meaning a, a clinic in austin maybe could be could be sued in a in a federal court in in the rio grande or in dallas or you know somewhere that's 300 400 500 miles away from the clinic thus disrupting the clinic's business obviously disrupting the clinic's finances if they have to fight more than one lawsuit at a time that's going that is negative incentive for these clinics to just close before they before they've even performed an abortion that is seen as objectionable by someone outside the state or inside the state they are they might be more compelled or more impelled to close their doors outright rather than have this sort of Damocles sort of hanging over their head, this, this threat of lawsuits from whomever, wherever, hanging over their head, which means that they might have to close and, be, and go bankrupt anyway. So it's a really clever but pernicious way to harass abortion providers and to permit anyone in the country who opposes abortion to harass abortion providers in Texas. When it comes to medication abortion, I mean, that's primarily what abortion inducing drugs are, medication abortion, the, the, the medication abortion two pill regimen. 
you know, this is a this is a method of abortion that a lot of people choose because it enables them to terminate a pregnancy safely at home. And especially with the pandemic, there were lists of drugs that were that were that the FDA and that state legislature said that you no longer have to go to a clinic in order to get these particular drugs. But but the two pill regimen medication abortion was not on that list. That's Imani Gandhi of Rewire News Group speaking with me in July about the Texas abortion ban. She now joins me once more for a follow up a week after the Supreme Court decided to let the Texas ban stand. Welcome back, Imani. Uh, thanks for having me. So last time we spoke, we were talking about how the Center for Reproductive Rights uh, was filing a lawsuit against this Texas abortion ban that Greg Abbott had just been signing into law. What exactly did the Supreme Court do? Or I should say, what did it not do? Well, the litigation was going forward in the lower court, in the district court, which is essentially a trial court in the federal judicial system. That case was ongoing. There were motions that were filed. And, and essentially, the district court had scheduled a preliminary injunction hearing for August 31st. That hearing, we advocates and you know court watchers assumed that at that hearing, this law would be blocked. And then the litigation could go forward on the merits as to the constitutionality of it. Instead, what happened is the, the defendants in the, in the case, the government defendants, Greg Abbott and Ken Paxton, went to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and based on the claims that they were making, argued that the district court didn't have jurisdiction over them and therefore could not hold this preliminary injunction hearing as to them. Um, also in that lawsuit is an individual defendant, a man by the name of Mark Dixon, who sort of latched on to the claims that the government defendants were making and also argued to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, you know, the district court also doesn't have jurisdiction over me. The district court doesn't have jurisdiction over Ken Paxton and over Greg Abbott. So really the district court can't hold this hearing because it was very much clear that if this hearing went forward, this law was going to be blocked. So what the Fifth Circuit did, it said, you know what, you're right. The district court doesn't have jurisdiction over the government defendants. And while we try to figure out whether or not the district court has jurisdiction over this one guy, this Mark Dixon guy, we're gonna go ahead and say that the district court can't hold this preliminary injunction hearing. Mm -hmm. So what that did is it put advocates and lawyers in this case in the position of having to try to figure out what to do in a manner of 24 hours to block this law from going into effect. So they did what one naturally does in these situations is they went to the Supreme Court, expecting that the Supreme Court in this situation would take a look at this patently unconstitutional law. We're talking a law that no federal court, no federal appeals court in the country has upheld. We were expecting that the court would look at this law and say, you know what, this is not constitutional, but we don't even have to decide on the constitutionality of it right now. We just need to, we just need to pause, take a beat, let's just stop this Texas law from going into effect so that the lower courts, the Fifth Circuit and the district court can fight it out about who has jurisdiction over whom and whether those that jurisdiction extends to this one individual, Mark Dixon, as well as to the government defendants. I mean, it's really a procedural morass and what the court was supposed to have done and what the court, if it weren't so hyper-partisan and captured by conservatives, is the court would have said, we're gonna pause this law and let the case go forward. Instead, the court essentially did nothing for a day, 
let the law go into effect. And then the day that the law, after the law had been in effect for about, you know, 14 hours or so, came out with a 400 word unsigned order that said, we don't really know what's going on here. So we're just gonna just stay out of it and let the lower courts deal with it. And that's just simply outrageous when you're dealing with a law that is so obviously unconstitutional and dealing with a situation that threw healthcare in Texas into absolute chaos. There's a healthcare crisis in Texas right now because the Supreme Court rather than doing what it should have done, did what essentially the Federalist Society wanted them to do. Wow. So the Justice Department under President Joe Biden has said that it will start examining legal challenges to uh, this law. Um, But it seems a little wishy-washy. I don't know if this is because Merrick Garland, our attorney general, is generally not a strong, you know, is not somebody who uses strong language, or it's because they too are struck by the legal morass, by the procedural aspects of this very insidiously cleverly written bill. So what do you think the Justice Department is doing? What can they do? Well, what they seem to be doing is relying on the FACE Act, which is a a piece of legislation that was passed in 1994, which essentially forbids clinic protesters from um, impeding access to clinics. It's the Federal Access to Clinic Entrances Act, right? And so they're kind of talking about what they're going to do in terms of what I consider these domestic terrorists who have been protesting outside of clinics, in some cases have increased violence. We're talking arson. There was the shooting at the Colorado Springs Clinic, um, you know, several years ago. I mean, these are people who are not, who are absolutely willing to use violence to promote their quote unquote pro-life beliefs, which is hypocritical in and of itself. So, you know, he's thinking, Garland is thinking about using the FACE Act, but the FACE Act has been barely, has been fairly ineffectual in stopping this sort of violence up till now. So relying on this law that has been essentially ineffective in addressing the violence that is now increasing, especially due to this sort of bounty hunting situation that is now ongoing in Texas. There needs to be real protection for providers, real protection for abortion funds and other organizations that are sort of in the abortion access pipeline and half-heartedly threatening to maybe do something under this 30-year-old law that has proven ineffective at doing anything about clinic violence and surveillance of abortion providers to date is just not enough. There's another um, angle to this whole issue, which is that we have been relying on the constitutional right to an abortion being protected because of one major Supreme Court decision instead of Congress legislating it, literally putting it into law. And there have been many times or several times since Roe versus Wade when the Democratic Party had enough control of the three branches of government that they could have passed a law fairly easily and not, you know, uh, risked us losing the precedent because of a conservative anti-abortion majority in the Supreme Court. Why haven't Democrats done this? This is a bread and butter issue, right? It is a bread and butter issue. And it's an issue, I think, that you know, the majority of the country does not want Roe versus Wade to be overturned. I also think that the, a lot of people don't understand that there is a way to essentially overturn Roe without actually overturning Roe. And so that's sort of an ongoing conversation that we have to have with people. But the very fact that we have a, we've had Democrats in office for however many years they've been in office and they have not 
bothered to codify Roe really does underscore how powerful the anti-abortion lobby is. You have, I mean, I, you know, the Republicans are practically captured when it comes to anti-abortion forces. But there's also this sort of quote unquote pro-life Democrats movement where there's always this conversation about whether or not Democrats should include people who are anti-choice amongst their forces. And it seems to me that the answer to that question is no, but but the, the, the broader issue is that there are people who are not pro-choice in the Democratic Party. So it really is going to take a bipartisan effort to codify Roe into law. And, you know, this is a good time to start looking at people like Susan Collins, who, when Brett Kavanaugh was in the process of being confirmed, expressed this notion that she was not sure that Brett Kavanaugh was really being put on the bench to do this thing, to help overturn Roe. Right. Well, she's a pro-choice now, Republican who claimed right, that, exactly. that, that, that her decision to confirm Kavanaugh would have no bearing on Roe versus Wade because she sat down and talked to him and was convinced. Right. <laughs> exactly. So it's time to look to people like her, to Republicans mm-hmm. who have constituents who don't want Roe versus Wade to be overturned and to put together some coalition of Democrats and Republicans to protect reproductive rights in this country because the bottom line is there will always be abortion. So what we're talking about now is whether or not it's going to be safe and legal and how people are going to access it and who the lack of access is going to affect most. And that the answer to that question we know is poor people and people of color. Absolutely. That's generally how it works out. There are uh, reports that Texas may be sending abortion-seeking refugees to other states. Um, Let's also uh, talk about the Supreme Court itself. Um, There's been a lot of talk about expanding the Supreme Court before Joe Biden took the presidency, but after he won the election, there was a lot of discussion around whether he would, especially with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whether he would expand the Supreme Court. Uh, People call it stacking the court, but, you know, a lot of uh, experts have suggested nine justices are just far too small a number to decide these things. And of course, we have Stephen Breyer, who is a liberal justice aging quite, uh, you know, rapidly and, and refusing to retire while Biden is president. Amy Klobuchar, senator from Minnesota, has called for him to step down in light of the Texas abortion issue. What do you think? Uh, you know, in order for the the ship to be righted, so to speak, we need to unpack the courts. I believe that the expansion of not just the Supreme Court, but the entire federal judiciary is in order, in order to, to counterbalance what Republicans have done over the last several decades. Whether or not that thing is going to happen depends on whether or not we can get these two recalcitrant senators, right, Joe Manchin and Kristen mm-hmm. Kristen Cinema, to agree to get rid of the filibuster, or at least to nuke the filibuster for purposes for the limited purposes of you know voting rights and expanding the courts. I mean, the problem is is that Democrats don't have a wide enough majority in order to get this done alone, and Republicans don't want to do it because re- Republicans have won in terms of the federal courts. They now one out of every four appellate court judge is a Trump appointed judge. They've captured the Supreme Court by a vote of six to three, five to four if there's a procedural issue and John Roberts doesn't really like the way the you know the way that the court is being portrayed as an institution, even though he's as conservative as the other five. 
uh, we're talking about a situation that's not going to be fixed by simply adding a couple of seats to the court. We need to overhaul the entire system. And there doesn't seem to be a will among Democrats to do that. Certainly, there doesn't seem to be a will to do whatever it needs to be done to convince these two senators that not only are their jobs in, in jeopardy, but the, this country is in jeopardy. Democracy is in jeopardy because of the past four years and because of the way the federal courts have been stacked with, in a lot of cases, incompetent judges, but in all cases, hyperpartisan right-wing judges. How are other Republican-led states looking to the Texas abortion ban to now say that they too will pass such a ban? Because this was, of course, a very important test case for the anti-abortion mm-hmm. movement. We're hearing about Oklahoma and South Dakota already. Yep, Florida as well. This is absolutely... I, I expect that when legislat- legislatures come back into session, um, they will start doing that usually about in January, but they'll start pre-filing bills at the end of the fall. We are going to see bills that, are, that read exactly like this six week ban that the court let go into effect, but also other types of abortion restrictions, whether they're gestational bans, whether they're reason bans, I can imagine that there's going to be um, in keeping with this ongoing weaponization of people with disabilities, this idea that there's this sort of eugenics crisis going on in the country because pregnant people are choosing to terminate pregnancies after they get Down syndrome diagnoses. Mm. I can imagine that there's going to be a bill that outsources enforcement of a Down syndrome ban to people. So if you know someone, um, someone finds out that they have that their their pregnancy is is or if someone gets a Down syndrome diagnosis, maybe their partner doesn't want to terminate. Their partner goes and 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 sues the abortion clinic, perhaps that their partner is planning to go to to terminate this pregnancy. So you know we're going to start seeing this sort of snitching, bounty hunting regime become very um, just prevalent throughout states that are hostile to abortion, and. And I think the counterweight to that, sort of the counterbalance to that, even though I don't, I don't like this regime at all, but you're gonna start seeing blue states trying to sort of test the waters when it comes to quote unquote blue state issues, right? So if California, for example, decides that they want to ban guns and they know that you can't ban guns because there's this thing called the second amendment, but they're going to insulate themselves from enforcement and confer enforcement to the public. So that if you see your uncle who lives in Sacramento posing with a gun, you can sue them in civil court and perhaps get a bounty for doing so. I mean, the idea that we're going to subject fundamental rights, constitutional rights to just sort of this, you know, villagers with pitchfork mode of enforcement Mm -hmm. is absolutely bizarre to me. Let's also look at how um, private interests have responded to the Texas abortion ban and whether you think that's going to have any effect. We've seen this in the past when Republican-led states have done egregious things. Um, You've had corporations that uh, do business there calling for boycotts. In the case of Texas, um, Hollywood movie stars have said that they're going to boycott Texas. Um, You've seen uh, companies like Lyft and Uber, which I thought was really interesting because if a rideshare company is giving a ride to a pregnant person seeking an abortion in Texas, um, they could potentially be sued as aiding and abetting in that abortion. And Lyft and Uber have said that they will um, cover the legal fees for any drivers that might be sued, which I thought was a pretty uh, bold way of saying they support the right to an abortion in Texas. Um, What have you heard about these efforts? And do you think that they might have an effect? 
I certainly think when it comes to sort of corporate responses to legislation like this, I think that's well in order. For example, Lyft, I think it, it's great that they're doing that. You know, I recall when there was the, the bathroom, um, bathroom ban situation in North Carolina where they were trying to uh, pr um, prevent trans people from using the, ba the, their, the bathroom that they need to use. I remember the NCAA pulled out of Charlotte. And so I, I do believe these sort of corporate responses to legislation that strip people of human rights are good responses. What I don't think is a good idea is this sort of person, this, these calls for personal boycotts, right? So you mm -hmm. get actors and actresses who are turning down jobs um, that maybe, you know, maybe a TV show is filming in Texas and they're saying, well, I'm not going to become part of this Texas fascism, so I'm going to turn down this job. Well, you're not, you're not necessarily hurting the people that you think you are, because there are people who are going to be filming that TV show or that movie, you know, working class people, people who are behind the cameras, people who are behind the scenes. I mean, it's not all just glitz and glamour. And these these opportunities are really sustaining people, especially now during this economic crisis with this pandemic. So I would encourage people to think twice about these sort of bold, loud calls for personal boycotts. But I certainly do appreciate when companies like Uber or Lyft are willing to step up and say this is wrong. Or if there's, you know, the NCAA or whatever, you know, a golf tournament or what have you that is set to take place in Texas when they say we're not going to support this, we're pulling out. That does hurt the people, I think that's intended to hurt more so than it does working class people. That does affect, you know, the public officials who rely on these sort of big events or the sort of, you know, networking that they gain from having these kinds of events in Texas. I think that does affect their, their decision making. Do I think it's going to make them stop passing these anti-abortion laws? No, but I do think that maybe they might start to rein themselves in in terms of not having everyone become bounty hunters throughout the country and just surveilling abortion providers and abortion funds and other people in that access pipeline. Imani, as far as you know, what has the direct um, practical impact been on the ground in Texas after the Supreme Court allowed the ban to take effect? Um, I briefly mentioned that there's reports there might be Texas, uh, you know, refugee abortion seeking refugees to other states. But are what's happened to clinics that have been in operation? Have they shut down? Are they basically waiting to be sued by, while continuing operations? Um, from what I understand, most of the clinics or the clinics that I'm aware of, particularly Whole Woman's Health, they are obeying the law. They are restricting abortions within that six week period, which means a lot of people, the majority of people who normally would be able to go to these clinics for care, to these providers for care, can't get that care. Um, you know, and, and August 31st, right up until 1159 at midnight central time, Texas time, I know that Whole Woman's Health tweeted that they were still performing abortions. They were still providing care to people right up until that last minute because there were hundreds of people who needed wow. help. And so it's already affected people. There are people who had who had appointments scheduled for last week who were not able to make those appointments. And are those people gonna be able to make it to Colorado to, to see somebody or to Oregon or to California to any of the, the, the non-hostile states? It's unclear. Uh, abortion funds are certainly working to try to get care for these people. But again, these funds are also targeted by this law. So it's a matter of the, the thing that's really diabolical about this law is that it doesn't let providers or people in the access pipeline know where the threat is coming from. It can be anyone and it can come from anywhere across the country. And so it puts up it sets up a situation where 
you know, you could be sued multiple times for the same abortion in different courts in different counties in the state. I mean, this is a, it's a law that is intended to scare providers out of providing the service. And it's intended to scare lawyers out of providing the service of representing these providers because, you know, if they lose the lawsuit, then they become liable for attorney's fees in a way that they are not for any other cases dealing with any other area of law. So Texas knows its abortion restrictions are unconstitutional. It knows it is going way just beyond the bounds of constitutionality with what they're passing. And so they're trying to make it so it's virtually impossible to challenge at a minimum so that these laws go into effect while these lawsuits are ongoing in, in the lower courts. It's, it's, they created a real mess and I don't think that they've thought through just how slippery the slope is going to be. Well, Imani, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to keep our eye on this story. What a strange and terrifying chapter of our political landscape we have entered into here in the United States. Um, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. And we'll post a link to rewirenewsgroup.com so people can find out more about what you do and listen to your podcast. Thank you very much. Imani Yandi, Senior Legal Analyst for RewireNewsGroup.com. She also co-hosts the podcast Boom Lawyered. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website at risingupwithsonali.com by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RU with Sonali.